Hello, and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century, brought to you by the Asia Group. I'm Rich Verma. Each episode will bring you into the discussion with the most prominent policymakers, artists, journalists, business and thought leaders driving the Indo-Pacific from New Delhi to Tokyo. My co-host, Kirk Campbell, is unable to join us today, but I'm extremely grateful and lucky to be here at Stanford University on the road and joined by my good friend, former U.S. Ambassador to Russia, Mike McFall. Mike is one of the foremost Russia experts around and truly had a front row seat to some of the most gripping and consequential recent periods in Russian history and U.S.-Russian bilateral relations. Mike served five years in the Obama administration, first as the senior director for Russia and Eurasia at the NSC, and then as ambassador in Moscow. Mike is a Rhodes Scholar and here at Stanford, his alma mater. He is currently a professor of political science, director of the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies, and the Peter and Helen Bing Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. He has authored and contributed to many, many books, uh, the latest of which is an extraordinary book called From Cold War to Hot Peace, and we're going to talk about that a little bit. Um, and it just came out recently. But Mike, thanks for joining us today on Tea Leaves. It's really great to see you. It's His Excellency, it's Stanford. so great to yeah. see you, Mr. Ambassador. Yeah, well, likewise, you too. Um, and thanks for your work in making me ambassador, by the way. You I, had something to do with it. I that, read so. through that uh, chapter about your Senate confirmation <laughs> with some degree of pain as I was thinking about that experience. And People for, well that ends well. Well, people forget how hard it is to get through that process. Yeah. And you talk about the holds. And um, I think people forget, like, your family is waiting right. during that period to get to get to Moscow. Yeah. And in our case, because we had rented a house by from some foreign service officers, they were, came back that summer. And you all were saying, oh, we're going to get this all worked <laughs> out. It's going to go quick. And so we'll say, oh, we'll just stay here at the Marriott Executive Stay for a couple of months, maybe a couple of weeks, actually, we thought. Took a little longer, but it was well worth the wait. Yeah, it was a great no, experience. It, it yeah. was incredible. Um, and I want to get to that, but I also want to start uh, a bit at the beginning. Um, and in your new book, there are some some great pictures of you, and and one which looks like you as a kid, frankly. Yes. And it, I think the yeah. picture says Russia or bust. Right. Um, and this is while you're in Montana. Tell me how a kid from Montana ends up with this kind of really passionate interest about, at that point, the Soviet Union. How does how does that even start? Well, it starts in an ironic way, given how much writing I do now. But uh, we moved from Butte to Bozeman, which probably doesn't mean much to your listeners, but that's from a very tough mining town to the very cosmopolitan town of Bozeman, where the college is. And I wanted to get an easy A uh, <laughs> in English, because I didn't like to write or read back then. And my neighbor told me debate class is the easiest way to do that. So mm. I signed up for debate class. And the topic that year was how to improve U.S. trade policy. Mm. And so I took the class and then I later joined the team. And we ran a case, my partner and I, um, uh, and you'll remember this because uh, we later worked on it, to repeal the Jackson-Vanik Amendment <laughs> oh, yeah. to the 1974 Trade sure. Act to yeah. try to increase trade to the Soviet Union. Right. And so it was during that experience as a junior in high school that I first started thinking about the Soviet Union. Uh, by the way, my partner was uh, Steve Daines. I saw that. Uh, now Senator Steve Daines from Montana. So we were a pretty good debate team. Um, and it was in that moment that, you know, two years later as a 17-year-old kid, I showed up here on the campus 
And I was worried about confrontation with the Soviet Union. Ronald Reagan was president, pretty confrontational uh, stance he took. And I had a theory that if we could just understand these people better, Mm -hmm. that we could reduce tensions. Mm -hmm. And so fall quarter of my freshman year, I signed up for two classes that changed my life. First year Russian and poli-sci 35, Mm. how nations deal with each other. Mm. And it was... Two years later, that photo is it's actually taken from the Bozeman airport, uh, you know, Bozeman to Leningrad. You can imagine how long it took to get there. Uh, my first trip abroad was to the Soviet Union um, because, to kind of test my hypothesis. But this was going to be, um, this turned out to be your career in the making, which was try to better understand yes. um, this incredibly complicated place and try to make relations better. And you thought... You know, we were on a path to in, incredible confrontation, and you saw it go through then a um, a resurgence in our in our ties. Yes, but that was part of your goal. Those early days uh, was about just we can do this. We can right. become better friends. Well, so two things happened. So I, I went on that trip. I met Soviets for the first time, and they weren't as scary as I thought they were going to be. Yeah. Um, and I'm in St. Petersburg, Leningrad, white nights, summertime, first trip abroad. And I was like, what's not to like about this place? <laughs> you know, I, I was having a grand time um, and learning lots. And uh, But then I go back a second time, uh, my senior year. I go to Moscow uh, in the wintertime. Uh, my Russian's better, so I penetrated into the so- society better. Um, and then... Really important small fact. My girlfriend is in Italy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm in Moscow. She later becomes my wife. So mm-hmm. it's a great story. It ends well, but I'm kind of homesick. And um, But I got into the fabric of that society, and I amended my original hypothesis. Because you see a more difficult life for people. Exactly. You're waiting in line for food. Exactly. You're seeing that, okay, well, maybe um, this little compact that the Soviet leaders have with their people is not really working out. Not so great. Yeah. And, you know, particularly going into Bidyoskas, they're called foreign exchange stores, where I could go in and buy books and food, but Russians could not. And that's when I developed this other idea that if there's not more uh, political change, more democratic change in this country, it's unlikely that we're going to be closer to them. But then that happens, you know, three or four years later, and I, I'm, I'm back again. But you're part of that too. And, I, you know, we're, we're going to fast forward through, like, decades of yes. your life here. That's um, why you got to buy the book, everybody. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but you're, uh, you have postings with the National Democratic Institute. Yes. You, were, you don't know this, but you were in uh, Moscow while I was in Bucharest with NDI, running the NDI I country group. I do group. remember yeah. that now. Yeah. Oh, my uh, God. You were famous. Yeah. Well, you, you, oh, were, you wow. were infamous. Um, <laughs> um, I just remembered that, of and course. Then, and then you went on to Carnegie. Yeah. But I want to I talk to you about two things about this kind of democracy. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, uprising is probably the wrong word in Russia. But there's another amazing picture here. It's in 1991 in your book. And there's hundreds of thousands of people in the square in Moscow kind of just demanding a better life, yes, better uh, kind of democratic uh, way of life. Um, where are those people uh, today? Well, first, I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm glad we spend a little time on that history because I think a lot of Americans forget, and Putin wants us to forget, 
that there was a time in our relationship where Russians and Americans wanted uh, a more democratic society. Yeah. And when I talk about the end of the Cold War, I talk about the role that Russians played, both Gorbachev and Yeltsin, but also those demonstrators that you're talking about. It right. was a collective thing. And as a young guy working for NDI at the time, yeah. you know, I was a rock star. Yeah. They loved me. Well, you say something really interesting. You say um, you didn't know that much about, you know, uh, you know, democratic transitions, yes. but <laughs> they just were happy that you were there. And I remember I the same American. thing when I was in Romania. Is uh, that right? Just showing up, being an American, showing that you cared, listening to, you know, we, we had some incredible experiences, but right. it sounded very similar. Very similar. Yeah. And those, that, the, the, you know, we, we made mistakes along the way as a country and as a world, and I talk about that. I think we should have done a lot more to embrace those people when they were undergoing the hardships of the 90s. Um, but it was a, you know, it was an important thing to remember that we had that history. And one other important thing to remember, we were not meddling in their internal right, affairs. Right. We were invited by them, right. by President Boris Yeltsin to be there right. because we were part of a common struggle right. back then. But let me go back to that photo and the hundreds oh, of thousands today? of people. Yeah, I didn't answer your question. And, and really probably millions of people across the country all kind of expressing that same desire. Have those people, um, have they been changed in their thinking? Are they comfortable with the current course? Uh, would they go back to that square tomorrow if they saw a path yeah. forward? Um, just what, what's happened in that time? Because yeah. um, are those aspirations gone? No, but it's a hard question. And now you're asking yeah. a hard social science question, right? Yeah. Not a question of policy. I, I would say a couple of things. First of all, that there's a tragic coincidence that Russia goes through not just a democratic transition, but a triple transition of going from an empire to an independent state, uh, autocracy to democracy, and command economy to a market economy. And by doing so, the, the birth of democracy is also the worst economic depression in that country's history mm. going back to World War II. Mm -hmm. And so it gets conflated in their minds that democracy means poverty. Right. Um, uh, so that's one thing. So some of those people were unsatisfied with what happened in the 90s. But, but to sp speed forward 20 years later, actually, we've had seen demonstrations that size again in December 2011 and 2012, actually, right as I arrived as ambassador. Um, and we just saw them last week again, not quite as big. But I think there's a lot of latent uh, demand for uh, democratic change in that society. It's dangerous now to demonstrate. Back then, you didn't get arrested and go to jail uh, to demonstrate. Um, but that doesn't mean they've changed their ideas. And in fact, I'll tell you a story from when I was ambassador. Um, May 6, 2012 was a, a big day for demonstrations. One of the biggest probably uh, recently. A lot of people were arrested. Some are still in jail today. By the way, during that time, there were posters all over Moscow saying the political circus is coming to town again May 6, and McFall is the artistic director, wow. right? Uh, that's yeah. literally, there were photo, uh, posters all at all the bus stops saying that. But I was in a high-tech company, and, and you know how it is, Rich. You, that's part of your job. It's part yeah. of the great part of being ambassador. You're to go and meet people and see what's going on. And I asked people, how many were at that demonstration? And almost everybody in the room uh, had been at that demonstration. And then I asked, well, who's planning to go to the next one? Because I think there was one coming up. And only three or four hands went up. And 
they must have noticed that I was surprised by that because a young woman said to me, she said, Mr. Ambassador, I didn't put my hand up uh, because I can't afford to be arrested. I'm the breadwinner in my family. Yeah. I have two children. But don't think for a minute that I've changed my preferences about the nature of this regime. Really interesting. So she's quietly watching this. I'm sure she's disturbed by where, where they're at. And one day there'll be a time when she might be able to express her views in a, in a, in a freer society. I don't know when that will be. My suspicion is it won't be until after Putin steps down or is incapacitated to rule. But it hasn't gone away. Yeah, that's really, that's really interesting. Because you do write in the book, you say the real struggle is between uh, democracy and authoritarianism, not necessarily capitalism and, right. and communism. And we now see that obviously beyond Russia. We see right. that in, around the world. And are you able to connect those dots? Is there something happening globally um, where, you know, kind of uh, the authoritarians or semi-authoritarians are gaining ground. Obviously, yes. we've got plenty of case studies. Um, well, we should talk about yeah. countries you know better than I uh, yeah. in this conversation. But let me say a couple of things. So uh, for Putin, going back years, maybe even decades by now, uh, he has been engaged in an ideological struggle. We may not have noticed until recently, but he has decided that he's the last great conservative leader in the world, Christian values, orthodox values, family values as defined by him, um, and anti-multilateralism, pro-sovereignty, Russia first, uh, all of those phrases he's been using for years and years and years. Mm. Um, And he fancies himself as an international leader, not just a, a local leader. It's grown over time. And he's invested you know, billions of dollars to propagate those ideas, to create platforms like Russia Today, Sputnik, these troll and bot farms that have been around for years and years. We've just heard about them recently. He's been doing this, cultivating relationships with political movements, people like Viktor Urban, the president of Hungary, Le Pen, giving them money, directly money, funding NGOs all over the world. You know, I think they've learned from NDI and IRI. I I don't think. I know they've studied them. In fact, one of their consultants used to work for NDI that does this work abroad. And over time, those ideas are percolating, and I would say all over the world. Whether they're the same ideas, I don't think so. We here at Stanford, we have a big project on this, studying it, and we call it a global populism's to keep open the hypothesis that there might be different in different places. And what's happening in India may or may not be related to what's happening in Hungary. We want to say that they're different. But it's happening, and it's happening at the same time that there is waning support for democratic ideas. Uh, The polling data on that's pretty clear. Both the practice of democracy has been in a democratic recession for about six or seven years. My colleague Larry Diamond has written eloquently about this. And in terms of popular support for ideas, they've been waning. And that has to do in part with our democratic society here, that we are not seen as a, uh, a system to be emulated. And that plays to Putin's strengths. That gives him uh, um, uh, room to maneuver. In fact, there was a very disturbing poll by Pew several months ago uh, asking people, who do you trust to do the better thing in, in the world? 
And Putin is making you know headway on that poll vis-a-vis President Trump. And that's a bad sign for you know the, the democratic values around the world. But as, as someone who grew up in this um, kind of democratic promotion um, line of work, what, what is, are, are you now discouraged? Are you, or are you kind of reinvigorated to, to kind of commit even more? Or do we have to go back and look at fundamentally the institutions, the processes, the the compact that, yeah. uh, at least in our country, that Americans have. You know, why are we why are we losing ground? Yes. You know, what's what's the answer? Maybe that takes a lot of time to figure out. But. Well, uh, first <laughs> thing we need to do is get our own house in order. Yeah, and you know, we need NDI to be working in America. You yeah. know, um, <laughs> and coming back to first principles. Right now, I'm actually encouraged by that. I'm not in the pessimistic camp on Good. that. I see. I see a reinvigorated civil society. I see the courts rethinking their roles. I, I see that happening. My, the thing I think I worry about now, you know, speaking comparatively, I, I teach a course on democracy here at Stanford from time to time. The, the real weakness, I think, is with our political parties and, and campaign finance of those. Yeah. And that's, that's a big trouble. We can have people come from out of nowhere and take over the party nomination process. But I, I see that kind of be reinvigorated. I wish it were happening quicker. Um, abroad, I, I think, um, and this is not something I would have said before serving in government. Uh, I wrote a whole book. The last book I wrote was called Advancing Democracy Abroad, Why We Should and How We Can. Uh, and I came out of the government experience uh, impressed you know, regrettably by some of the limits of American power. Right. Uh, you know, we sit down in that White House Situation Room. I used to see you down there, and we think we're, like, running some play. And, you know, Dennis McDonough's telling us we're going to do 17 things in our game plan, right, when he was the Deputy National Security Advisor. And then we emerge, and we go out into the world, and guess what? A lot of other people get a vote right, <laughs> right. as to how we're going to run that play. And, right. and on first contact, we have to change it. Um, so I, I come out humble generally about American power, not just about democracy promotion. But secondly, you know, I would like to see cleaner separation between what the government does and what non-governmental actors like NDI, like International Republican Institute do. I think the more space we have between that, the better. And when it's the government giving money in any country... Uh, it just makes it harder for us to, to explain that this is not somehow serving America's interests. Yeah. And I experienced that very directly, uh, you know, as a U.S. ambassador in Russia. Yeah, I want to I go back to that because um, I was with you during those uh, days. You were on the NSC. I was at State. Yeah. And, uh, was those able, were some good years. Those were good years. Well, <laughs> I, I, I read uh, with fond memories about that trip to Prague to sign the new START yeah. Treaty, yeah. which, uh, you know, was a terrific experience. And then we got it ratified. Got Don't it ratified. That. Yeah. Uh, maybe the last arms control <laughs> treaty for, for a while. Um, that was a good day. We drank champagne in the Oval Office. Yeah. Day. And, and, but then when you show up as ambassador, just a few years later, things are very different. Yeah. Um, 
just give the listeners a sense of what happened and how surprised were you that, as you describe it, Putin had decided to make you one of his principal yeah. targets. That is a scary deal. Yeah, it was. I don't want to. I don't want to trivialize it at all. <laughs> right. Sitting in his office, you know, in the Kremlin or out at his dacha, when he starts to accuse you of things, yeah. and your bodyguards are on the other side of the right. the wall. By the way, well, I'll tell the story. So, I, I, you know, I'll bet you a lot of listeners don't understand this about academics, but. Um, the normal professor, I'm a professor here. I'm going to be a professor here for the rest of my life. Maybe I'll do other things in, intermittently. Um, but normally you just go in for two years. Right. In fact, some universities, Harvard, for right. instance, you have to go back after two years. Thankfully, Stanford's a little more flexible. And we did have this professor that was gone for eight years, yeah. uh, Condoleezza Rice, that kind of set a precedent for <laughs> um, your approval process. But that was always my plan and my plan to my family. They wanted to come back here after two years. And they didn't see me that much, you know, working at the White House. And I went in to tell my immediate boss that, Tom Donlan, who we both worked with, and Tom said, that's a horrible idea. We're doing all this historic work. Like, how <laughs> right. can you... You can't leave. You can't leave yeah. in, the, in the third quarter of, right. you know, the NBA game seven right. of the finals. You, you got to stay here for the end. Right. And then he talked to the president um, and he said the same thing. He said, yeah. you know, McFall can't leave. Um, and then I went back home and it's like, you know, we are going to leave. Uh, <laughs> and through that negotiation, that's when they came up with this sure. idea. I wonder what your story is, how you ended up in India. But, a, lot, um, a lot of similarities. Well, that, you know, and pretty hard to say no to that guy, right? right? Yeah. Um, and back then, this is early in 2011. This is a height of cooperation. Yeah. Uh, Medvedev had just signed up to authorize the use of force against Libya. Yeah, can you uh, imagine? Yeah, never had happened right. in the history of U.S., Russian, or U.S.-Soviet relations. Yeah. And you had cooperation on Iran sanctions. You had yeah. cooperation a, across the board. And yeah. making progress on WTO, it was really, yeah. everything was going in the right direction. So that's when he says, well, think about it. And eventually we took a while for my family to negotiate and and then the clearance process internally and then the nomination. Yeah. And, and then, you know, that, that takes three more months to get through the Senate. And in the interim... We, uh, between the spring of 2011 and to January 2012, when I show up, uh, you know, as we've just described, uh, there were these demonstrations in Russia. Putin blamed us for it, uh, blamed Secretary Clinton for it. Uh, Medvedev once called uh, Obama during that period and said, does she speak for you? Because mm -hmm. we were outraged by that statement. Mm -hmm. By the way, I cleared that statement on behalf yeah. of the White House. Yeah. Um, and then by the time I land, they're already making this pivot against us. They're, they're saying that just like we do all over the world, we're now trying to overthrow the Putin regime by supporting the opposition. And they blamed America, they blamed Obama. And when I landed, they blamed me personally. In fact, right. they said, even before, even before I'd shown up for my first day of work at the embassy, there was this hit piece done on me. By the way, by a guy who I had known for 30 years, uh, Leontif is his name, and where he said very clearly, McFall's mission here, he's been sent by Obama to support the opposition. Yeah. And, you know, I got on the plane as Mr. Reset in Washington, and I landed in Moscow as Mr. Revolution. And right. we tried to fight back and say that was not what we were trying to do. But really, for the rest of the time I was there, that's the way I was cartoonized on uh, in Russian national media. Well, that's a tough position to be in. I mean, I think people 
you and I can both appreciate this. You land in those capitals. You you don't have um, a job description in front of you, right? Yes. You're carrying a letter from the president, right? And your team is waiting for you to opine on some you know weighty issues. Yeah. But you really, I you know, from our perspective, uh, you, you did an amazing job through a pretty tough, uh, pretty tough time. Yeah. It was tough, but remi- I want to remind people because because uh, it's also in the book. It's an incredible job, isn't it, yeah. Mr. Ambassador, to be ambassador? I love being the ambassador because there were so many dimensions to that job, uh, interacting with the business world, interacting with the cultural world. Like, you know, I hosted at my house that seats 600 people in the ballroom, Herbie Hancock, yeah. my my idol of when I was a kid playing jazz trumpet. Uh, here he was sitting in my living room, right? Yeah. I hosted the NBA. Uh, we had two all-stars in my house. My my sons are giant basketball yeah. fans. They weren't so impressed by Herbie Hancock, but they were impressed by the NBA. And so remember that it's a it's a package job. It's a great privilege. There's great no privilege. question about it. And yeah. for for me, obviously, I got to go back to all these yeah. places that you know my parents and grandparents uh, yeah. were from, and yeah, that's a pretty amazing. pretty humbling humbling experience. So I want to fast forward um, to the current day. And when I look at the national security strategy that the administration put, put out, yes, it talked about this concept, we're back into kind of great power competition, right. or great power conflict. And it talks about China and the US and Russia. But that presumes that A, Russia is a great power and B, that they can um, counterbalance or counteract what we're trying to do. Give the listeners some sense, are they on the decline? Are they on the rise um, and you know how do how should we perceive them in mm-hmm. this era well it's a complicated question that's why i use the phrase hot peace yeah to echo aspects of the cold war but to say there are certain things that are different and of course russia has nowhere near the capacity to influence the world affairs as the soviet union did in the heyday of the soviet union in the 70s But on certain dimensions, I think it's even more dangerous. So, you know, we're still the only two nuclear superpowers. We gratefully have reduced the number of nuclear weapons during the Cold War, and we helped that with the New START Treaty. But now we're on to a qualitative nuclear arms race that is scary Mm. and undermining, and we need to deal with that. Uh, The Cold War ideological dimension, communism, capitalism, as you mentioned, is over. But there is an ideological struggle there, and we ignore it at our peril. And even things like conventional military power, where Russia today does not have the same power the Soviet Union does, but they've invested heavily in modernization, heavily. They have lighter tanks, faster tanks. Uh, And if you look at the European theater, uh, the balance of power there is pretty scary, Mm. I would say. Um, And then one last dimension, you know, Putin's holding weak cards compared to what the Soviets had. But he's more willing to play them. He's uh, doing riskier behavior. Right. You know, the Soviet Union, so Brezhnev never annexed territory. Uh, Brezhnev never intervened in an American presidential election. Right. And that what that's what makes this new uh, era scary. And so what I recommend, and I do this tragically, right? I'm not a cold warrior. I'm not looking... Uh, forward to this battle. But I think you need to have a sophisticated, multi-pronged strategy that is, you know, two parts containment, uh, one part engagement. Got it. 
not unlike what we did during the Cold War. Yeah. You got to push back on these negative things because he respects that. And if you don't push back, he's going to keep going. And at the same time, look for areas of cooperation when it serves America's national interest. That's, that's really smart. I want to pivot a little bit um, towards Asia. This is a a podcast about Asia. So I I do want to ask you in in a bit of a speed round here um, about Russia's relationship, relationships with some key players that we we think about uh, a lot. And frankly, are not sure where they are on some of these relationships. And and one, I just I want to ask you about Russia, China. Yeah. And and we think, um, you know, they're at conflict and at odds with each other, but I've also seen them uh, engage in a lot of cooperation. There's a lot of yes. Russian military equipment there is. Uh, sitting in Chinese hands, and that that's of concerns to a lot of folks, including um, India, including the United States and others. What's, what's going on between Russia and China? Yeah. Well, you know, back when I was at the White House, Ambassador Kislyak used to be the Russian ambassador. And when we were doing our pivot to Asia, yeah. he said, yeah, thank, you guys are finally catching up. We did that a long time ago. Huh. And they do have a, a very concerted long-term strategy for engaging in Asia. It, you know, whether it's effective or not, we can evaluate, but they're trying to do that. I think Russia-China relations today are the closest they've ever been, maybe. And should that give us some degree of concern? Yes, yeah. I think we should be concerned about it. And I think we have a strategic interest to weaken that. Um, and, uh, you know, we don't notice it. And I think over the long term, it will fall apart because of China's growing power and the threat that, you know, one belt and run road and uh, immigration, all those long term right. issues. But in the short term, they are lockstep. Uh, and that has implications for us at the Security Council. They vote together all the time. How much of that is just about blocking uh, European and American interests? I mean, it is, yeah. but it's not just that. And I think Putin and Xi have cultivated a close relationship. You know, Shanghai Cooperation Organization, that's a counter to all of our uh, clubs. Uh, and Russia, they understand they're going to be a junior. They wouldn't say this publicly. Putin would never use the word junior partner ever. Right. But they understand they're not the big, the, 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 the hegemon in the region, but they want to bandwagon with the hegemon in the region to balance against America uh, with respect to China for sure. Let me let me shift uh, over towards South Asia a little bit and uh, Russia, Afghanistan, and Russia, Taliban. What what yeah, is crazy? What is going on there? Well, that's really tragic because that was one of the big achievements of the Obama administration, where right. the very first meeting President Obama had with Medvedev, two thousand April two thousand nine, had a big conversation about privileged sphere of influence in Central Asia right. and. Uh, basically, I think, convinced Medvedev if we had a common enemy there and we did a lot of cooperation to fight the Taliban. Now, you know, rumors that they're supporting them and pivoted away, real tragedy. I hope we can uh, check that, but it's it's disturbing the reports you're hearing about how Russia has changed its policy in Afghanistan. Russia, Syria, and... You know, Let's not skip Russia, India at some point. But we're we're going to come back great, to that at the, at the very end because I, I do think that's important. Yeah, um, Syria, but, yeah. But Russia, Syria, um, most days not aligned. Uh, 
what what's happening yeah. and how do we can we come into alignment? You know, Syria's so tragic for me. I mean, the chapter is called uh, "Chasing Russians, Failing Syrians." That's the ch- the title of my chapter, and mm. it's the longest chapter in the book. And it has to be so long because it's such a tragic mm. history where we thought that if we could get Putin to agree with us, we could forge a political transition. He puts pressure on Assad. We put pressure on the opposition and the strategy didn't succeed. Right. Um, fast forward to today. They have their allies on one side of the river. We have ours on the other side. I think the best we can hope for is stalemate. Um, and the worst I'm worried about is we pull out and there's chaos and fighting and ISIS reemerges on the other side. And the losers of that, of course, are the Syrians. But Putin thinks he's won. He thinks he backed his guy against us and, and he's prevailed. And what he explained to President Obama way back in Los Cabos, Mexico, I remember it vividly, 2012. You guys think democracy leads to stability. We think having a strong man leads to stability. Mm. The cost of that was 500,000 lives, millions displaced, but he thinks he's won. That's tragic. Let me go back uh, to South Asia then, to Russia, India. Uh, there was a point uh, when I was in Delhi where we had overtaken Russia in becoming the leading kind of defense uh, and strategic partner with India. We provided more um, just sheer number of, of uh, weapons platforms. We did more military exercises. And then there's a real competition now right. between um, between us and Russia yeah. for that for that pole position. Um I think we have a better record on maintenance and servicing. And sure. obviously, I, I just think we we are a better uh, long-term strategic partner. But there are obviously legacy relationships between right. um, Russia and India. What do you what do you see happening there? And, and how do we um, how do we deal with that? And all, obviously, this is ultimately a question for the Indians to resolve. But right. um, I think we as I said, I think we offer a better path forward in the long run. Well, I agree with you. And I think it was a, a giant accomplishment of the Obama years, by the way, and noticed in Moscow, very much so. And they, you know, we always try to think of uh, these as win-win outcomes and not zero-sum competition. But when it came to India, that was not the Kremlin's view. And we were making headway at a place that was a vital strategic partner of the Soviet unions for a long, long time. Uh, By the way, there's a big legacy of that cooperation. There's a huge Indian community in Moscow. Mm -hmm. I got to know them fairly well for Mm -hmm. a variety of strange reasons, and we go to all kinds of Indian holidays because they know how to have uh, a good time. And sometimes (laughs) on a cold day in Moscow, it was fun to be with the Indians. Um, You know, Rich, I would pivot back to you. I don't really know how the Trump administration's handling this well. I, I know our new ambassador there. I hope they have the eye on the ball here because I think it is a vital uh, piece for American um, security. And and as I write about in in an article coming out uh, about grand strategy, um, we have to have a grand strategy in Asia that that does keep our eye on the ball for what the Russians are doing. Because even with South Korea, even with Japan, Putin's strategy is to peel away and to weaken our alliances. It's, it's, you know, he realizes he's playing in a constrained space, but he sees opportunities right now. Well, I think um, it's interesting as as Russia increases its uh, kind of relationships with Beijing, as it now increases relationships with Pakistan. 
I do think that gives us an opening to deepen our cooperation with India. And so we'll we'll see what happens uh, coming up okay. here. Okay, stay tuned. Yeah, stay tuned. Um, so Professor McFall, um, Ambassador McFall, this has been a real privilege for yeah. me, and it's been great to see you uh, again. And again, I highly recommend that all of our listeners go out now and pick up a copy of your uh, new book, From Cold War to Hot Peace, An American Ambassador in Putin's Russia. Uh, it is gripping, extremely well-written. Um, and Mike, uh, really, thank you so much for being on Tea Leaves. I hope you'll come back. Fantastic conversation, yeah. I look forward to coming back again. Yeah, and thank you all for listening. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next time.